thought you were going to move that away in case you had to shout or something. Um, but Mike has been a part of High Point Church almost since I've been the pastor. Um, and we've been friends for a long time. And it's, it's been good. And I, when I met Mike, I would have never thought that I'd be standing here today turning this platform over to my friend, Mike. <laughs> but here we are. And God has done some amazing things in his life. And I know he has a word for us today. Mike, I love you, bud. Love you, bud. Appreciate that. hear the term lithuation what we got going up in here is a lit situation the holy spirit is moving through this place i mean what five 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 baptisms now in two weeks that's that's it's amazing um folks if you don't think that jesus christ can change lives ask pretty much anybody in this room So if there's anything that I have learned, and Pastor David, by the way, thank you so much for this privilege and this opportunity. I, I hope I do you proud, and I hope I, um, this is a blessing as well. If there's anything that I've learned in recent years is that great caution needs to be taken before preparing a Bible study or a sermon message, especially one with an edgy title, because it is a veritable guarantee that I will be tested, tried, fried, and tumbled through the topic. So it is with that insight I offer you today's title. I'm over it. If we're being honest amongst ourselves, I suspect that each of you has exclaimed this sentiment at least maybe a time or two in your lives. Of late, I, I don't think I've gotten through 15 minutes of being awake without saying it, usually aloud and often with great emphasis. From the seemingly simple things like being tripped by 14 cats, well, that's an exaggeration, by six cats on the short walk from the bedside to the bathroom, to trying to drive anywhere in the Bay Area, <clears throat> to dealing with work-related nonsense. And truth be told, no workplace is immune. Dare I say not, e I say that even pastors have likely thought, if not even said, those three words in moments of profound frustration. And parents, I'm looking at you now. The kids are on their eighth, you're not there yet, you will be, eighth straight hour of bickering, complaining that they're bored, crashing through the house like a giant in some Barbie dream house, and you're in the midst of cleaning up the latest spill that hopefully doesn't involve blood this time. I'm over it, you exclaim with great fervor. Truth is, whether it's work, parenting, or ministry, there is a common theme, people. And with that, the very catalyst for many of our frustrations. Of all three I just mentioned, work, parenting, ministry, people are the one common denominator. I've often said of all three, this gig would be easy if it weren't for the people. Miss Ruthie, if you can put that up there. So this actually popped up in memories yesterday and, and uh, on, on Facebook. This little comic, I find it very amusing. I find it accurately amusing. It's going to help lead into where I'm going with this today. It shows Jesus on a hilltop proclaiming, be kind to everyone. And someone in the crowd shouts out, wait, even Gary? Someone else says, 
yells, yeah, Gary's the worst. Jesus, patient as always, says, look, we've been through this. Yes, be kind to Gary as well. Gary from the way back, arms in the air. Ha! Take that, losers! Jesus face palming. Not now, Gary. You know, the Bible, that thing cracks me up. The Bible never directly makes mention of Jesus being to the point of saying, I'm over it. But he was as much human as he was and is God. And I can think of many times that he might have had moments where even he was over it. Those of you who know me well know that, I, that as much as I'd like to think of myself like a Paul or a Timothy, in reality I'm really more like a Peter, at least before the Holy Spirit got hold of him, tempestuous, spontaneous, mouth engaged before my brain, unfiltered. And I'm sure that Jesus had many opportunities to be over him. Like Peter, I like to think that you know, my efforts to improve are progressing, albeit not as hastily as some folks might like. I'm looking dead at the camera because my wife is watching. I'm talking to you, Jen. Of course, we know one, one very specific instance where Jesus demonstrated his degree of doneness, like stick a fork in it, done. In the table-turning temple incident, say that three times fast. Let's look there as a real quick refresher. And again, I'll mention that all of my scripture is from the New King James Version, and no, not because I think it's the only accurate translation, but it has been my go-to for some 30 years. So that's where I'm most comfortable. So look at me in Mark 11, verses 15 through 18. It says, so they came to Jerusalem, and, they, <clears throat> excuse me, and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. That's a nice way of saying how they could kill him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Familiar story, right? We've heard it. But like the Facebook Reels comedian Wix that some of you might have heard of, somebody in this room might be asking, what in the Florida is going on here? What is going on in that temple? Well, the temple was being used for animal sacrifices. That wasn't the issue. The crux of the issue is that the priests were permitting the sale of the animals to be used for the sacrifice within the temple courts. People would not have to bring their own animal from afar and risk it not being accepted by the high priest during his inspection of that animal for the sacrifice. In other words, they had their very own temple version of Amazon Prime going on. People took advantage of the convenience, which really called into question how much of a sacrifice it really was. And they paid a premium for the supposed convenience of buying their sacrifice there in the temple courts. You see, what it was all about, and this was Jesus' real issue, what it was all about was money for the priestly hierarchy. The sellers either belonged to that hierarchy or they paid to play. In other words, they paid a large fee to the temple for the privilege to peddle their animals there. So either way, the priest's family benefited monetarily. And then there were the money changers. These guys were the currency traders. 
they would exchange Greek or Roman coins for Jewish or Tyrian coins, which had to be used for the service. And as with any currency traders, they made a steep commission on the swap from government to religious currency. So if you've ever traveled abroad, I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this a time or two. If you've ever traveled abroad, <clears throat> you've either had to convert your cash at the airport or use your credit card. In either instance, a fee was assessed for the conversion. So, for instance, I had to order a part from my pressure washer. It came from Canada. It was like you know, 24 bucks Canadian. But a conversion charge of $2 showed up on my bank statement. So what I saved in the conversion from Canadian dollars to U.S. dollars was offset by what amounted to a mere mathematic translation between two banks. Well, these guys, they were making mad money off the commissions they were charging to trade the currencies. The sacrificial animals, this is where it really gets rich, y'all. The sacrificial animals often went to the back of the temple for the supposed sacrifice, only to be returned to the merchants to be sold over and over again. You heard that right. They weren't even sacrificed. This gave the merchants an additional convenience of not having to have as much inventory on hand, and they could sell the very same product multiple times over. The priest had turned the entire thing into a racket. What was supposed to be a very reverent, worshipful occurrence had become profiteering at its worst. These guys were what the kids today would call OG, original gangster. The priest, the merchants, the currency traders, they were all capitalizing on the Jewish people, and the Jewish people didn't seem to care. They were ch just checking off something on their to-do list. Get up, check. Get dressed, check. Swing by Hebrews Coffee for a large non-fat extra foam goat milk latte. Check. Buy a sacrificial animal at the temple. Check. Stop by Ira's Deli on the way home for a Reuben on rye. Check. Jesus regarded both the buyers and the sellers as guilty of desecrating the temple. And further, Jesus' reference to carrying the wares that was talking about carrying the wares through the temple, telling us that the people were using that temple court simply as a shortcut to transport utensils and containers of merchandise to other parts of Jerusalem. Yeah, he had a reason at that point to be over it. That practice was so pervasive that it revealed a great irreverence for the temple and ultimately for God himself. You know, Using the word offended today often calls to mind folks thought of as snowflakes that are put off by mere words. But in this instance, Jesus was legitimately offended. <clears throat> he was, after all, God's son. And he witnessed evil upon evil taking place in the very place that was supposed to be a house of prayer. His remark in verse 17. Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of thieves. That is a conflation of two Old Testament prophecies. The first in Isaiah 56, 7, where it's written, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The other part of that scripture came from Jeremiah 7.11. Has this house 
which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I have seen it, says the Lord. So if there was a, and be grateful there isn't, but if there was a Mike's translation of the Bible, somewhere in here, Jesus would be quoted as yelling, I'm over it, as he cracked the whip and overturned those tables. And you know what? He'd have been in the right. Wait, wait, I know. Someone listening is all thinking, hey, hey, doesn't the Bible say something somewhere about, I don't know, being slow to anger? Oh, I know. It says something about being angry but not sinning, right? Right? I got that somewhere. It says that somewhere, I'm sure. And if so, then wasn't Jesus sinning with his temple tantrum? No. But yeah, you, it does say that. It says both. But no, Jesus was not sinning in his display of anger. Because it was legitimate, righteous anger. Not the emotional, you cut me off in traffic, fish-shaking anger. There's a vast gulf between the two. Look here with me in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 31. <clears throat> it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give a place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer. But rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, for, but what is good for necessary edification, that, they, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. You see, anger can be either good or bad. I mean, none of us like to be angry, right? Usually that's not good for my blood pressure. But what Paul is sanctioning here is righteous indignation at evil. This type of anger hates injustice. It hates immorality. It hates ungodliness and every other kind of sin. Jesus' anger should be considered as righteous because it was unselfish and based on the love for God and for others. And it is this, and only this, type of anger that is not only permissible, but commanded. But, but don't stop there. Paul includes a cautionary word in the second part of verse 26. He says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Well, what does that mean? Well, you see, if that anger is allowed to fester it can easily turn to bitterness. So it's important to set it aside at the end of the day. Don't toss and turn in bed fretting about it because it's when you're angry and tired that the enemy can get a foothold. And now you're mad because you can't sleep and you want to get even. And that's when anger has migrated from acceptable to sinful. Paul gave a very clear admonition on that in Romans 12, 17 through 21. He writes, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil 
with good. Everyone tracking? So I've been thinking about this message for, well, since you found out you had to have surgery. So it's been a while. But when I first started thinking about this message, anger wasn't really a, cat, a, 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 a consideration. It wasn't a catalyst. There was never a planned subtitle like, how to be mad God's way. But when you think about it, as I have thought much about it for several weeks now, especially this past week, at the very root of the expression and sermon title, I'm over it, is anger. It might be shaded by things like fatigue, frustration, disillusionment, but really, aren't each of those just gateway emotions to anger? You see, the real catalyst for this message was more akin to, uh, with, with as easy it is for some of us, I say some, but not all, because I know some of y'all walked on water all the way here and never get mad about anything because your feet don't get, even get wet. But as easy as it is for some of us to exclaim, I'm over it, the question that the Holy Spirit hit me with one day after I blurted that out for like the bazillionth time was, aren't you glad Jesus isn't over you? Aren't you glad he chose to die for your sins rather than looking into the future scene and thinking, yeah, that Mike guy, you know, his horizon's still 2,000 years out, but I know how he's going to be. And quite frankly, I'm over him, and he ain't even here yet. I'm in no way, shape, or form going to suffer a grotesque crucifixion for that guy. At no point did Jesus look to heaven and shout, Abba, Dad! See this joker, Mike, and that guy, Manuel, that other guy, David? Yeah, I'm thinking we should have stuck with the dinosaurs. That didn't happen. But, but ouch. Crash and burn, that realization, when the Holy Spirit says, aren't you glad Jesus isn't over you? When that hit me, it wasn't pretty. You see, this isn't how Jesus works. What did Jesus say his role was? He said his role was to seek and save the lost. To whom did he say it? This little tax collector guy named Zacchaeus. I say little because I don't want to offend anyone with the word midget. Um, but the guy was shorter than usual. But he had deep pockets from pilfering from the taxpayers. More on that in a minute. But who are the lost? All of us. Isaiah 53, 6. <clears throat> All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Debbie, what do you know about sheep? Oh, they're like goats. They're like basic. Okay. They're dumber than a box of rocks. It's not the most flattering reference that could be made of us as a species, as, as humans, right? Sheep aren't known for being the brightest stars in the heavens. And as such, they are prone to making less than good decisions. For instance, a sheep at the edge of a steep cliff. Just one more step to really, as I trip over that thing, just one more step to appreciate the view. It's weird. It's, it's, it's not unlike people walking backwards off some scenic overlook in their effort to get the perfect selfie. Now the, the national parks are putting signs up, don't stand here, you're going to fall off. 
because they're constantly doing this business all the way over the edge. Who looks after the sheep? The shepherd. Who's the shepherd for us? Come on, somebody say it. Jesus. In our ignorant pursuit of the next best selfie, we are all like sheep who have fallen astray. So now back to the short guy. Luke 19, 1 through 10. <clears throat> then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him. You remember that Sunday school song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. We climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way, he being Jesus. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received Jesus joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with that man who is a sinner. Bless his heart. Then, the, then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is the son, is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Tax collectors weren't well liked then, even back then. The Jewish version of the IRS did whatever it wanted, even without 87,000 additional agents. These guys pocketed everything and then some. Zacchaeus was the proverbial, that guy. When Jesus invited himself over for fried chicken and sweet tea, was it so uh, he could tell Zacchaeus, I'm over you? No. No. So let's take a quick step back to recap the meaning of a single word. Gospel. Gospel. It means what? Good news. What's the good news? Well, for one... Jesus didn't and hasn't and won't ever be heard saying to us, I'm over it. He is the personification of both mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. To some, those might come across as churchy words. Christianese, if you will. But they're both very real concepts that have a direct application in each of our lives, not only to be given by us, but more importantly, because he gave them to us first. Mercy has been defined as not getting what we do deserve. Similarly, grace has been defined as getting what we do not deserve. You see, those two things are not mutually exclusive. In other words, in a, in a biblical economy, they occur simultaneously. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was both an act of mercy, saving us from that which we did deserve, and grace, giving us the very thing that we don't deserve, salvation at his expense. 
So that brings us to an interesting quandary. Are we free to do whatever we want without consequences because of the combined gifts of mercy and grace? In the words of Paul, absolutely not. Paul raised that rhetorical question in Romans 6 on the heels of discussing the topic of grace in chapter 5. He writes in Romans 6, 1 through 4, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we should walk in the newness of life. What just happened up here a few minutes ago? That whole baptism, is, it's, it's an outward sign of an inward change. Okay? We talked about this at Bible study recently. It is, simply, it is not a condition of salvation. It is an outward reflection of an inward change. What's the gospel say? Or what's the Bible say? <clears throat> I am not ashamed of the power of the I am not ashamed of the power of Jesus Christ as a means to salvation. Paraphrasing. When you're laid down in that baptistry, that's representing a burial. You're raised to walk in newness of life. Here's the reality. Yeah. We do have free will. That means we can do whatever we want. We're not little God robots. Adam and Eve figured that out pretty quickly. And they figured out that their sin necessitated both grace and mercy as well. So as with Adam and Eve, yeah, yeah, we can do whatever we want. However, that does not mean that our choices are without consequences. Extreme example. Should you commit murder? No, of course not. And if anyone said yes, please see Pastor David after the service. But can you? Yeah, you can. Can God forgive the sincerely repentant person of that sin? Yeah, he can and he will. But don't think you're going to get a free pass on your prison sentence. Free will does not come without a cost or consequence. The cost was Jesus' death on a cross for the sin. The consequence is that you're probably still going to rot in prison. There's certainly lesser examples of that concept, at least some that don't involve prison time. But the point remains, yes, you have free will to do whatever you want but neither grace nor mercy will give you a free pass to the consequences of your choice. Does that mean you should gamble and take advantage of free will because you can? Paul just answered that. Certainly not. There's a couple of principles that Paul offers to squelch that whole idea. The first is in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through 31. He writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. 
for the earth is the Lord in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord and is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do what? Do it all to the glory of God. What Paul is talking about here is not being so strictly governed by doctrine that you lose sight of grace. In other words, some principles. Edification over gratification. Liberty over legalism. Others over self. And further to that end, he offers guidance on how to frame our mindsets. In Philippians 4.8, one of my favorite verses. By the way, this is a good password for your computers because it makes you think about it every time you key your password into your computer. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, and whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, do what? Meditate on these things. Think on these things. Pray on these things. Sometimes it's a challenge to figure out what the takeaway is from a sermon message, so let me offer you some bullet points, and worship team, if you want to come up, that's fine. First, it's okay to be over it, sometimes, but be wary of the underlying catalyst for your over itness. If, as I've often experienced, anger is at the root of it, check the anger. Second, be grateful for the gift of Jesus' sacrifice for us, both on the cross and in the resurrection. We serve a living Savior, not some ethereal, nebulous, feel-good, live-enlightened so-called God, lowercase g. Thirdly, recall that the gift cost God dearly. It was His own Son who willingly gave of Himself for us, and we certainly didn't deserve it. I didn't. I ain't tell you all this. None of y'all did either. I mean, just being honest. Again, email him if you don't like that. Fourth, grace and mercy are both free. But that doesn't let us write a free meal ticket to abuse it either. So finally, the next time you, we, me, I stand in a mirror pondering our reflection, pondering where all we've been in life, all that we've done, good, bad, indifferent, be glad. No, 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 don't be glad. Rejoice that Jesus didn't look out across the annals of time and say of us, I'm over them. I'm over it. I'm over them. I'm done. I'm out of here. Hashtag see ya. He didn't do that. He didn't have to take the place for our sin. We could have been left to languish in the guilt of debt that could neither be repaid nor canceled. Yet instead, God sent His Son to die as the one and done 
final sacrifice for our sins. No more temple offerings. No more crooks in the temple courts selling offerings that never got sacrificed. No more money changers. No more merchants patting their pockets. No more corrupt priests. Indeed, as written in Isaiah 53.10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So that Jesus could say once and for all, in John 19, 28 through 30, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Translation, that debt stamp, that debt that we all carry around, that debt of sin, that debt for each of us was stamped, paid in full. Instead of Jesus saying of us, I'm over it, he said, it is finished. The only real question that remains is what will you choose to do with that reality, with that gift? Will you just toss it off as some millennia-old fairy tale, maybe some sort of clever literature? Or will you humble yourself enough to accept that free gift of eternal life? Not only is he not over it, but he wants us to spend eternity with him. We were made for fellowship. These meat suits we're wearing, we were dying from the moment we were conceived. But our soul, our spirit is eternal. What you choose to do with that That's entirely on you. The context is different, but the direct imperative remains the same as written in Joshua 24, 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father, or the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Y'all, I might be over a lot of things, but the one thing I can never be over, get over, or want to be over is the depth of love that God has for me that he wants to call me his own. If you've not made that commitment to Christ, if you haven't been willing to say, you know what? Yeah, I'm a sinner. Maybe today's that day. Maybe today's time for you to come and kneel at this altar and pray. Pastor David often says that altars alter people. Don't be ashamed of your need for a Savior. We all need help sometimes in real life, right? 
This is real life, y'all. We only get one go at it. As the uh, worship team plays, I invite you to these altars. If you need prayer, come forward and pray. If you want to pray quietly and you want to tuck yourself in a corner, you can do that too. If you want to talk about accepting Jesus as your Savior so that your debt too can be stamped paid in full, these altars are open. Would you come?